Just want a, a special shout out to you men whose wives are at the the women's retreat and you brought kids today. Congratulations. You suddenly realize just how much your wives do on a Sunday morning to get you out of the house. And, um, and also to those of you who, despite my best efforts, were actually able to get the house built yesterday. Again, thank you. I, it is amazing how unskilled at building I really am. I'm realizing I have the spiritual gift of deconstruction. It's the putting things back together. So to all of you who were out here yesterday, to all of you who have financially supported that house that's sitting out here on a trailer that's going to be taken down next week, I just want to say thank you. It's so fun to see the, the body of Christ, our, our little church community, come together and do something like this. Um, and just so you know, there are hundreds of church communities that are doing this. They, they have now something like 1,400 of these houses down in the Ensenada region where we're headed. 1,400 families that have a home that don't have to sleep on the dirt floor. And it's just so fun. Uh, to be able to, yeah, so thanks. If you have a Bible, turn with me. And, and if you don't have a Bible, then grab one underneath the seat. Or you can go, uh, you know, you can use your phone, I suppose, as well. Although I like the analog version. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Over the last couple of months, we have been in the book of Colossians. And just kind of a, as a reminder of where we've been. Paul wrote this letter to a church that he had never actually been to. He's in prison when he's writing it, and he's writing it to a church that's been infiltrated by some false teaching. People who are saying, yeah, Jesus is great, but if you really want spiritual fullness, you need to do these things. You need to worship these other spiritual entities. You need to you fill in the blank. They were kind of calling the gospel message incomplete, and Paul is saying, you guys need to hold on to the true gospel message. That gospel is simply that Jesus Christ did for us what we could never do for ourselves. When he went to the cross, he took that, the bills that our lives had racked up, the, the certificate of indebtedness that we could never pay off for ourselves, and he, through his body and his blood, nailed them to the cross, paying once and for all the penalty that we never could, so that we can be called sons and daughters of God. So that we can be called saints, which simply means a saved sinner. Although we struggle, although we have fallen short, we are called saints. That's what he's done. That's the good news. And it is complete. Nothing is missing. And after he spends the first half of this letter telling them and then reminding them of what the gospel message is, he then begins to talk about, now how do you live this out? How can you be an ambassador of hope and reconciliation in your community? How can we be light as sons and daughters of God, representing Him? And so Lee last week, in the last couple of weeks actually, began to enumerate some of the ways that we can begin to live lives of light in the darkness Particularly in chapter 3, I'll just start reading in verse 12. He said, here are some of the things we put on. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiving one another. And then over all of those kind of attitudes and postures, put on love. Because love really is the glue that makes it all work. It is the gasoline of the engine that causes us to, to be able to interact with any sense of you know, purpose. Love is the most important of those qualities. 
And he talks about this kind of generally, but now as we get into verse 18 and a little bit more into the chapter 3 here, he's going to go even more pointedly into some of the areas that we can begin to model the love that God has for us and the relationships that are most intimate to us. In our marriage relationships, husband and wife, in our relationships with family, our kids, our parents. And I know we have several of the kids. It's Family Sunday. So some of you kids in here today, I'm glad you guys are with us. This one's going to have a lot to do. This, I'm going to be speaking to you as well. And to us parents who are raising children. And then to those of us who work, who have jobs between masters and servants. He, ta- he starts talking about how we can be light in the midst of all of these relationships. So, verse 18 of Colossians chapter 3. Wives... Submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or you will become or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as if you're working for the Lord, not for human masters. In other words, whatever you're doing, consider Jesus Christ as your boss. So even when your boss who signs your paychecks isn't there, Jesus Christ is the one you're ultimately working for and representing. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for the wrongs, and there is no favoritism with God. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, I know that there was a word in there that probably for some of you is the only word you heard, and that is submit. And we're going to move, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Actually, we're going to talk a lot about that today. But as we go through this list, this is a very common list, one that Paul actually kind of enumerates several times in a bunch of his letters, most notably in the the book of Ephesians. And we're going to go there to really kind of start unpacking some of this because I feel like he he treats it even more deeply in Ephesians chapter 5. But before we get there, I want us to go back to Genesis chapter 3, because it's in Genesis that we really see the foundation for our conversation today. A couple of points before we start reading in Genesis 3. When God created everything that he created, and he creates man and woman, Genesis chapter 1 states that male and female he created them in the image of God. He said, let's make man in our image. And he says, the Bible says, then he created the male and female he created them. And I want to point out that it's not just masculine characteristics that represent God. Women, you are just as much image bearers as us men. And in fact, we can't get a clear picture of who God is without our feminine counterparts. Because there are parts of God that we as as men, you know, can never fully embrace the nurturing aspects of God. We, we call him father, but we miss out when we kind of look at him as just this masculine entity up in heaven. We miss parts of who he really is. There are places in scripture that says he wants to gather, you know, his people together as a hen gathers her chicks and places his, his wings over to protect. There's this nurturing quality to God that we guys don't necessarily epitomize as well as our wives or our, the, the ladies do. And I want to point out that there is no value difference between men and women in God's eyes. We are all image bearers, all created to represent him. 
Furthermore, in Genesis chapter 2, God says that when he created Adam, he goes, you know, it's not good. The only thing he says that's not good in his creation is that the man would be alone. He goes, I want to make a suitable helper for my boy. And this, this term helper, we might look at that as a derogatory statement, almost suggesting that the woman is second rate. But I want to point out that the word helper, izer in Hebrew, is the same word used of God elsewhere in Scripture. He is our helper. And in no way does that indicate some second rate status. What he's talking about is the woman is a partner to him in the dominion over his creation. He says, I'm going to put you in the garden to tend it. And this woman that I'm going to entrust to you to be your partner in this, she will be able to support you in areas that you're weak. Just as you support her in areas where she is weak. You guys fit one another well. And we all know the story. God places them there, says, have at it. You can touch everything. Just don't, don't eat it from the fruit in the middle of the garden, from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch that. And the, wife, or the husband and wife are naked and they felt no shame until the serpent comes in. And he goes, did God really say that you can't touch that fruit? Well, yeah, because if we touch it, if we eat it, then we're going to die. You won't die. Don't you realize? And this is the serpent speaking. He's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He doesn't want you to be like him. And so the serpent begins to sow seeds of a question. Is God really good? Does God really care for me? Does he really have my best interest in mind? And the husband and wife look at the fruit and they go, yeah, that looks pretty tempting. And you know what? Maybe knowing good and evil, being more like God, that sounds pretty pleasing as well. So they take the fruit, they eat of it. And no, no sooner had they done that, then their eyes are open, they realize they're naked, and they feel shame for the first time. They feel guilt. And they hide not only from one another by covering themselves in fig leaves, but they hide from God. We see the beginning of a separation between their father and themselves. And God then comes in, and it's interesting because he, he goes, what have you guys done? <laughs> and Adam goes, it wasn't me, it was that woman you gave me, God. She made me eat it. And he's like, oh, it wasn't me. It was that serpent. He, he tempted me. He, he's responsible. And God starts shaking his head. And, and so he, what he does is he curses the serpent. He curses the man and he curses the woman. And we might look at these curses as, as simply punishment. You know, it's just kind of like God spanking us for misbehaving. But I want to suggest that these curses are something very different from simply blind punitive you know reaction it's not just i'm going to spank you this because here's the thing god understands that now that the male and female are bent now that their eyes are kind of open and they are beginning to focus more on themselves and their own ingenuity and all these kind of things he realizes their natural impulse won't be to turn to him they will seek other things to fulfill areas that only he can fulfill and so these curses are actually an act of mercy. And he, here's what I mean. He curses the very areas that Adam and Eve, men and women, you and I, will look to to satisfy those deep-seated parts of our heart, to fulfill us, to give us our identity. For the men, what does he curse? The work of our hands, right? 
He curses the ground. Now it will no longer simply yield its produce for you. You will have to work by the sweat of your brow to get it to produce. It'll, it'll produce thorns and thistles for you. He frustrates the work of our hands. And guys, how many of us, and we don't have to answer this, I think I'm speaking for most of us, we, find, we try to find so much of our identity in what we do, how well we do it, how high in the corporate ladder we can climb. And God basically says, this will never be able to satisfy you. This will never fulfill you. This is not your identity. It may be what you do to provide for your family. It may be what you do ride for yourself but this is not your identity he frustrates it so that the man will have to turn to god to find his fulfillment in his identity and then with the woman let's read this in verse 16 to the woman he curses childbearing he says (laughs) i will make the pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor you will give birth to children and all the women said thanks eve that was awesome my wife is really looking forward to this one again, but we are pregnant again, which is kind of an exciting, scary thing. Oh. I, I may not have been supposed to say that, so don't tell Kathy. And then, and this is the, the second part of this verse is the part I really want to focus on because this is the foundation for what we're going to talk about today. He says, your desire, speaking to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband. Now, the word desire there doesn't simply mean attraction. It's not like, oh, he is so handsome. Look at those muscles. And I just love the way he smells. It's not it. Desire here means a a, a desire to control, manipulate, fix her deficient, dysfunctional husband. The next place that that word desire is used is actually in a warning in Genesis chapter 4 when God says to Cain, listen, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must master it. So the term desire there doesn't mean attraction. It means a desire to control, manipulate, or fix. And then he says, and and your husband will rule over you. That term rule is the same term used for kings over their kingdoms. That the husband will dominate and attempt to domineer his wife to get his own way, to make things happen the way he wants them to. So we see right at the very beginning, God tweak a marriage relationship. God tweak the relationship between a man and a woman. That the woman will seek to fix and control and manipulate her husband to fix him, to get him to be right because there's something deficient rather than respecting and honoring him. And the man will seek to simply dominate his wife into submission. You will obey me to get his own way. I'm so glad that this doesn't actually play out in any of our marriages, in any of our relationships in the year 2013. Thankfully, we were beyond that, right? Yeah. Okay, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Interestingly, Rome, you know that the the writing of the New Testament, Rome at that time was the dominant world power and Rome really held sway over Israel. So, so much of what we read in the New Testament is influenced by a Roman influence. And Rome unwittingly took that curse that the man will rule over his wife and it made it into law. According to Roman law, a man was the king of his house. 
He could divorce his wife. He could beat her with impunity. His children, he could disown them simply by turning his back and saying, I no longer want you to be my children. He could disown them like that. Slaves, servants in his home, they were his property, nothing more. He was complete and utter, in complete and utter control of his household and could do anything he wanted. He didn't owe his wife love. The only thing that was owed to a wife was a roof over her head, food on the table, and children. That's it. He didn't know her love. He didn't know her conversations. He didn't know her date nights. None of that. And women very seldomly actually married for love in this culture. They were simply a function of their household, of what the man wanted. This is, I'm simply painting a picture of the cultural context into which Paul is writing this letter because it's important for us to understand how people operated in this culture that he's writing in both Ephesus, in Colossae, and these other cities that are Roman cities, that are influenced by Roman customs and laws. He's writing to them, so we need to understand that context. Otherwise, it's very easy for us to read these things out of context. Is that clear? Are we cool? All right, so... Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Now let me stop right there before I keep reading. This word submit become a dirty word in our culture. It's one that we get uncomfortable about talking about. But I want to point out that submission is not a derogatory term. It does not mean that you become a doormat that just gets walked all over. It doesn't mean that you are a second-rate citizen. Submission simply means to take your desires and to place them underneath the best interests of someone else. Best, best example I can give you is when I'm driving down the street, wherever I, whenever I'm driving, I have some place I need to get there. I, I have a purpose. I have a plan. I'm in a hurry, I tend to be. But when I hear a siren... And it's not a police car right behind me, but I hear a siren, maybe it's a, an ambulance or maybe it's a fire engine. Despite the fact that I have places to be, despite the fact that I'm in a hurry, what do we do? We pull over to the side. We, sub, we submit, we place our interests underneath the interests of complete strangers. And by the way, at least my motivation isn't just because I might get a ticket if I don't do it. I'm doing it because I actually want the firefighters to be able to get there safely and be able to take care of that or allow the the ambulance to get to where they're going so they can take care of that person even if I'm not related or I don't even know that person. I have submitted my interests underneath those of someone else. That's what submission looks like. It is a choice. And one other thing I want to point out. Look at verse 21 again. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Who is that command directed towards? Everybody. Not just wives. Not just children. Not just servants and slaves. Like the Roman culture would say. The Roman culture would say, Wives, children, slaves, you submit. Husbands, you are in charge. But then he goes on in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, I want to stop there for just a second because you notice that in my Bible, there's a period between verse 21 and verse 22, right? And in some of your Bibles, there may even be a section break. It might say something like rules for Christian households or wives and husbands in between verse 21 and 22 for some of you. 
In doing so, in the way that they have punctuated this passage, they have done horrible damage to the meaning that Paul is saying. Because I want to point out that verse 21 and 22 are actually in the original Greek, one sentence. There shouldn't be a period break. Furthermore, the word submit is not found in verse 22. It is only used once in this sentence in the section of verse 21. So it should read something more like this. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives to your husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body for which he is the Savior. So it's giving the example of wives submitting to their husbands, which in this culture is very normal, is very familiar. It's giving that as an example of mutual submission. Wives submitting to their husbands wasn't groundbreaking. Children submitting to their fathers wasn't amazing. Slaves submitting to their masters was not out of the ordinary. What was out of the ordinary in this culture is any sort of insinuation that a man should submit in any way, shape, or form. But wait a minute. It says here that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Doesn't that then mean that men truly are the ones who are kind of in charge and women have to submit under them? That is completely twisting and misunderstanding what the word headship or the head of the family means. And so what I want to do is I want to take a couple of minutes and just unpack this idea of headship for a second. Because if we don't get it, it can be, it can be very easy to slip back into kind of the, the curse that says that the man is in charge of everything and everybody has to submit under him and we get our way and get to domineer. So let me give you two pictures of headship. The best kind of modern equivalent to headship that I can think of as being a team captain of a team sport, okay? Headship, team captain. And there are two pictures I want to give you of a team captain. The first would be that of Scottie Pippen, okay? Scottie Pippen played during the Michael Jordan era on the Chicago Bulls, and while Michael was on the team, Scottie Pippen was kind of second rate. He was always in the shadow of Michael. But when Michael retired, it was Scottie Pippen's turn. He got to be team captain, with all of the, the responsibilities, all the opportunities that went with it. Well, back in the, the NBA Finals in 1994, Scottie Pippen and his Chicago Bulls were trailing to the New York Knicks in the semifinal of the NBA Finals by like two points with 1.8 seconds left. One opportunity to take a shot to win the game. Now, Michael Jordan used to get those shots, but now Scottie Pippen's thinking, it's my turn. Finally, it's my turn to be the hero. And he goes over... They take a timeout, they go over to the stand, and, and, and Phil Jackson writes up the play, and he designates somebody else on the team to take the game-winning shot. Well, Scottie Pippen was irate. It's my turn. I'm the team captain. It's my, res- it's my right to take that shot. He was so upset about the fact that Phil wouldn't let him take the shot that he refused to go back out on the court. He sat on the bench while the rest of his team went out there And they ended up winning the game. But this team captain lost because he lost perspective of what his role was. To to him, being team captain meant, I get my way. I get what I want. It was a very self-centered, self-focused posture with a lot of entitlement that went with it. That's one picture of headship. One picture of being a team captain. The other picture I want to kind of juxtapose to that would be that of Larry Bird. Larry Bird was a little bit before Scottie Pippen's time. He 
was everything that Scottie Pippen wasn't. He showed up to practice before everybody else on the team. He was the last one to leave practice. And he was known for being the hardest worker on the court. He modeled for the rest of the guys on his team the kind of intensity that was going to get them to win championships. He made everybody on his team better. In fact, he led the league many of the seasons that he played. He led the league in assists because he was constantly dishing the ball to other people so that they could take the shot. Two pictures of team captains. One that says it's all about me, it's all about getting what I want. The other that says my job is to make the rest of my team better. My job is to model for my team how they should go. My job is to submit my interest to the best interest of the unified team. And the better he did that, the more success he experienced. So which of these two pictures, Scottie Pippen or Larry Bird, do you think Paul is talking about when he says the husband is the head of the family just as Christ is the head of the church? The third? Oh, birds. Okay, I'm like, huh? Yeah. That, that, that second picture of Larry Bird saying, it's not about me. It's about the team. And you see that really there is submission wrapped up all in that. He has Jesus Christ as his example. And how did Jesus Christ love the church? He died for it. He sacrificed. I think of that moment when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane on his knees begging God, if there's any way we can do this without me having to die, please. But at the end of the day, not my will but yours be done. And he submitted his interests to our best interests. And he walked to the cross and he took our sins upon himself. That is the picture of headship that we are given, that Paul gives us to follow as men. This message, Ephesians 5, although it's a passage that, you know, has tended to be used to keep women in a subservient place, even to keep children in a subservient place, this passage is far more about us men recognizing that we have a responsibility. Our role as men is to be the heads of our family as Christ Jesus modeled headship for us by being the first to bend a knee. When we're in a fight, and I, I don't particularly like this passage because I, I can't tell you how many times <laughs> I've been in a fight with Kathy and I just want to hold on to my anger. I want to hold on to my right to be right. And this passage, how do I love my wife as Christ loved the church? This passage kind of percolates up through my frustration. And I recognize it is my responsibility. If I want Kathy to relent, if I want Kathy to apologize, then I need to model it. My job as the head of my household is to model the type of lifestyle and actions and heart posture that I want to see them have. So more times than I can count, I've had to kind of drum up the courage to swallow my pride and go apologize first. More times than I can count, I've had to scrape up the courage to go sit down next to my boy who's in timeout because I was angry and I lost control and have to go apologize and ask for forgiveness from my five-year-old boy. I'm an imperfect person. We're all imperfect people. I'm going to do this imperfectly, but as men, headship does not mean we get our own way. Headship means we model for our families the type of lifestyle, 
attitude and actions that we want them to epitomize. Now, wives, this doesn't get you off the hook because you too are called to submit to your husbands, to show respect even when you don't necessarily feel it's deserved. To support and pray even when you just want to curse and walk away. And kids, it doesn't get you off the hook. Your parents are going to make mistakes. And there are times when you may need to be the ones to apologize. You may need to be the ones to scrape up enough courage to kind of say, I have to own your own stuff without using it as a way to go, but you... You know, that's not what we're talking. There may be relationships in here right now that are fractured because you're holding on to anger and rather than letting it go, you kind of focus on how you're right and how you have been wronged. And I can tell you from experience, that's not how you're going. Your relationship is not going to be fixed by simply waiting for someone else to bend a knee. We are all called to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So I ask you to consider... What relationships do you have where you need to practice some submission? Where you need to take your interests and place them under the best interests of that relationship? One other thought as we're kind of wrapping this whole thing up. I will be the first to confess that this idea of of leading by submitting seems right and really as i've looked at this passage and so many of others in the new testament it resonates and yet i can try my best to do it and i will fail every single time now i might be able to do it for a little bit but give by my own strength by my own sheer grit and determination i will fall short every time because we cannot overcome the curse by our own strength. Remember that God intentionally cursed our relationships, bent them, skewed them, not because He is some cosmic killjoy who just likes to burn us with a magnifying glass. He's not up there just trying to screw our lives up so He can get a laugh at us. The curses were intended to frustrate those areas where it's so easy for us to try to find our identity and find our fulfillment. And he bent and broke those relationships so that at the end of the day, we would be forced to seek him out. Because for him, he desires intimacy over all things. He desires relationship with us. If we by our own strength are trying to overcome the curse, we will, we will fail every single time. So what's the solution? There is no three-step process, no quick fix to this. The only way that we can possibly overcome our own brokenness, overcome our own self-entitled nature, is by allowing Jesus Christ to be that light that comes into the darkness of our own hearts and begins to purify us. To allow Jesus Christ to do the work in us that we can't do for ourselves. He already did it once and for all on the cross justifying us. But there's still this sanctification process, this process of being set apart 
from the rest of the world. This process of allowing Him to change us. We can't transform ourselves. Only He can transform us. You know, preparing for this message, I I was reading all of Ephesians again, and there's this part in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, that pretty much for me, for Lee, for our elders, this is our purpose statement. It says, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Christ gave... Some of he gave to us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. He has given the world these things in order to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of fullness in Christ. In other words, our purpose as pastors is not to fix you. Our purpose as pastors is not to do the work of the church. Our purpose as pastors, the purpose of this church, is to equip you to be ministers in your own right. To equip you to be the church in your household, in your community, in your workplace. My job is to equip you. And I will tell you, (laughs) I feel like we're failing at that. I feel like we are really good at playing church on Sunday. We're really good at putting up some music, having a message, and then we go home to our regularly scheduled lives. And I'm confessing to you as a pastor that this is an area that I am praying desperately that God helps us grow in. Because at the end of the day, if Jesus is not here, if Jesus is not actually, if you are not connecting with Jesus and are driven into his arms, then we are just paying lip service to this whole Christian walk. If I'm not driving you into the arms of Jesus Christ, then I'm failing you by suggesting that there are other ways that you can be healed and fixed and whole. You can't. Jesus is the only one who can do it. Eric Wayman cannot. Lee Harrison cannot. And it's not our job to fix you. It's not our job to be Jesus. It is my job to simply point and say there is one that can and then give opportunities for you to embrace him. Now I've talked a lot about this 21 days of prayer, this experiment, and for me it is an experiment. I don't know what it's going to look like over the next three weeks, starting tomorrow night. It, it, it could be amazing, and it could be tremendously awkward. But I will tell you this. I personally am hungry for a deeper, more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ than I've currently got. The thing that scares me is I've grown really good at doing the things I need to do by my own strength. And I thank Jesus that he shows up and he still works in spite of my limitations and in spite of my pride who thinks that I've got it all together. But I desperately need Jesus. And I, for one, am looking forward to an opportunity to carve out some space just to spend time with him because far too often I've allowed the things of this world to tune him out, to eclipse him. I've allowed television and books, and my telephone, and to-dos, and tasks to get in the way. And I've become far too comfortable just doing it by my own strength and hoping that it's enough. So I, for one, need this. 
But I also know that there are a lot of us here. I would go so far as to say all of us here need to carve out space to be with Christ. Now, is this going to fix everything? Is this some sort of panacea that will fix all of our problems? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It is simply like a spiritual detox to carve out space to allow God to shine a spotlight and say, listen, the ways you've been going about doing things, let's talk about that. that the, the ways you've been holding on to that anger, to, let's talk about that. The ways that you have entertained the lies of the enemy that you are a failure, that you have fallen too far, that you are useless. Let's talk about that. Because I'm your father. And I know you better than you know yourself. And I want to tell you something about yourself that you may not recognize. I anticipate that God is going to open the floodgates because God desires intimate relationship with us. Now, as a pastor, as a fellow journeyman in this relationship with Christ, I can't force feed you. I can't even force feed my own family. But I know that we need this. I know that I need this. And I simply ask you to seriously consider carving out as much space as you can. You can't do all five days for all three weeks? Fine. Do what you can. You can't be here every night? Fine. Spend some of that time with your family intentionally seeking Him together. The whole point of this is simply to be more of a starting point to a more intimate, intentional relationship with God than it is to solve all of our problems. I just don't want you to miss it because Monday night football is on and you care about who's playing. It doesn't matter. Maybe it does to you. But there are things that matter more. And I'm beginning to realize that. So, all that to say, We are called to mutually submit to one another. To mutually submit our values, our desires, our intentions, our hopes, and our dreams to the best interests of our families, to the best interests of our workplaces, of our communities. And if we're willing to do so, if we're willing to allow Jesus Christ to do the work in us that He wants to, then we will truly be what the church name says we want to be. A light a house of light shining in this community. Our homes will begin to represent God. We then will become His ambassadors of hope and reconciliation to a world that desperately needs that, but has become so turned off because there are so many false advertisements, so many people saying this is the fix-all and it doesn't fix anything. Jesus Christ alone can help us change. Jesus Christ alone can help us love. Jesus Christ alone can help us to truly respect one another. And it is only through Him and intimacy with Him that we will be any sort of light in our community. So would you please consider, seriously consider participating in these next 21 days. I suspect that it will have a radical impact on many of us in here And given enough of us that actually engage, I believe it will have a radical impact on this church. And that's what I want. But not only for this church, I want that for me. All right? Let's pray. God, I thank you that as a father who recognizes that we are broken, 
and we are immature (laughs) and we're pretty self-assured. We need you. Thank you for recognizing that. And, And although it doesn't necessarily, it seems hard to understand how curses can be blessings. Thank you for constantly pointing us back to you and constantly frustrating the things we try to find our identity in so that we can only find true fulfillment in you. God, you know the things that stand between us and that. You know the things that get in the way of intimacy with you. You know the things that have gotten in the way of connection and intimacy with our families, our kids, our spouses. Thank you for the grace and the message of the cross that our sins have been paid in full. Thank you that we don't have to cower in your presence, but can come walk boldly into your presence, washed, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for submitting your own desires to our best interests and and walking to the cross and taking upon yourself the penalty that we had earned for us. Thank you for loving us. God, would you do a work in us that we can't do for ourselves? Would you change our lives so that we would be known for what we are for, that we would be known for the way that we love, that we would be known as men and women of integrity and character and love that we would be light in our communities. That's what we want. We don't know how to get there, but you do. So would you lead this church, this community, into greater intimacy with you? Jesus, in your holy name, amen.